Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word and to guide us and show us what you would want us to see from all of this and ask your Holy Spirit's leading in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Second Kings chapter 13. We are returning back to the northern kingdom. And remember, I've said this before, but Israel, the book of Kings, bounced back and forth between the kingdoms. It takes one king all the way till the end, and then if there's a switching kings in between that person's reign, it goes back to the other, other kingdom. So we had uh, uh, Jehu uh, having died at the end of chapter 12, uh, 11, and then we went into Jehoash's reign, and now we're back to uh, Jehu's son in chapter 12. And it gets kind of confusing. This is why people sometimes graph this out and, and mark it down to, to follow what kings you're talking about and, as you go through this. So chapter 13, verse 1. And in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoiahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which made Israel to sin, he departed not therefrom. And the anger of the Lord was kindled upon Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, all their days. And Jehoiahaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him, for he saw that the oppression of Israel, because of the king of, of Syria, oppressed them. And the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they went out, from under the hand of Syria, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but walked therein, and there remained the grove also in Samaria. Neither did he leave the people of Jehoiahaz, but fifty horsemen, ten chariots, and ten thousand footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and had made them like the dust by threshing. All right. So here we have Jehoiahaz <laughs> becoming king. He's the son of Jehu, and, and it's, he's going to reign for 17 years. And verse 2 says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. And we've said this many times. When you see that statement, we're talking about golden calf worship because Jeroboam was the first king of Israel. And he, if you remember, he... He decided he didn't want the people in his t t uh, country to go to Jerusalem twice a year to, to worship in, in Jerusalem because they might just decide to become one with the southern kingdom again. So he introduced golden calf worship and said, these are your gods. And most of the kings thereafter, we see this little statement, they followed after the sins of Jeroboam uh, and departed not. And so we see this whole process going on. And verse 3 says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, all their days. And this word for anger literally means to be seen in the face. All right? and I don't, you, we know what that means. When you see somebody, you, they may be seething inside, but you don't see it in their face. You know, they can get away with not being angry. This is the anger that is obvious. You know, you see that you know, when you look at somebody who's really angry and not in control, you can see it in their face. And this is their nostrils are flaring, they're, they're, they're turning pale. This is the type of anger being, being expressed here by God. 
Uh, so this is meaning God has been pushed to the limits. And he says, okay, he's had enough, and he allows Syria to oppress the northern kingdom. And remember in the previous chapter, it talked about the king Ahaziel going in and taking the cities away, and that Israel was getting smaller and smaller as, as Haziel was taking cities away from them. And in the process of this, I, I found this very interesting. In, in verse 4, it says, And Jeho Jehoiaz besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened to him. All right? So Jehoiaz besought. He begged and entreated God. He went, and he went to pray to God. Now, the funny thing is, is that he's not giving up on his other gods. All right? This is a great picture of God's mercy and grace on Israel. And it tells us why in this same, because God saw the oppression of Israel and because of the king of Assyria, of, of Syria oppressed them. Right? God saw how much bitterness the king was putting on them and how much he was hurting them. And God had compassion on them. Not because Jehoiasah was willing to repent. He was repentant enough to go to God and say, God, we need your help. But this is kind of the amazing things. We hear the stories about people all the time who are in the middle of a hardship and they pray to God. You know, God, help me. I need help. And out of his mercy, he helps them. God, I'll do anything if you just help me. And then they forget their promise to God after he helps them. This is the type of prayer that he's giving. He's beseeching him. He's not ready to, to repent. He's not ready to turn his nation to God. But God looks down and says, your people are hurting. My children are hurting. God has nev will never abandon his people even when his people abandon him. And this is the amazing thing for us. And we as Christians, if we walk away from him and do our own thing, God still says we're his children and he waits patiently for us to come back, he may let things like, like the king of Assyria come and attack us. But he says, I am still not going to abandon you. If they get too harsh with you, I will step in. And here is what he says. Um, and uh, verse 5 is an interesting one. And the Lord gave Israel a savior so that when they went out from under the hand of Syria, the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. Now this savior that he's going to give them does not come in Jehoiaz's lifetime. It's going to come in his son's lifetime. And the one who is his savior is Joash, the king of Judah. And then if you look at verse 25, we may get there tonight, but in verse 25 it says, and Joash beat the king of Assyria three times and won back Israel's cities. So the one who's going to come in and help them is not somebody from Israel, the northern kingdom, but the king of the southern kingdom is going to be his deliverer, all right? Uh, and it's kind of interesting how God will work this out. He will not use our own strength when we're out of fellowship, but he will do something miraculous to try to show who he is. And this is what's going to happen here. God's going to use the southern kingdom to deliver him, but not in King Jehoiah's life. And this is oftentimes what God will do is he'll say, fine, I've heard your prayer. I'm going to deliver you, but not necessarily in the timing that we want it to be in. 
And I love this because as I've walked with God over the years, the one thing I've learned about him very specifically, he does things in his own time. Uh, he's, never, he's never late by his standard. He seems late by our standards because we want him to do things in plenty of time. We would go, God, I've got a bill due Friday. I really need the money now so that I know that I've got it. And God says, well, I'll give it to you Friday morning. You know, and he'll give it to us right on time to meet the needs so that he, we know that it's him. Because if he gave it to us early, we'd say, oh, wow, God, thank you for the, con-. you know, I, I look at the, how consequential it is. I got this money plenty early enough. I somehow did something to earn it myself. And we know that that's exactly how we end up thinking. We've done it many times in our lifetime. If God answers early, we tend to start thinking, wow, you know, how lucky was I to get this money that early? So God usually waits to the last possible moment to provide for us money or whatever it is that we need. And he says, this is what we're going to do. And this is what he's done for him. He's going to deliver Israel. And the delivery that they get is that they, you know, nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel a sin, but walked in there and remained in the way they remained. And there remained the grove also in Samaria. And remember, we've talked about this. The grove is reference to Astoroth worship, uh, which is the god of fertility. So they are worshiping golden calf and Astoroth still. Now, we do know, remember, Jehu got, got rid of the temple of Baal. He did do one step toward God. He says, I'm going to get rid of this temple, but he didn't get rid of the golden calves and he didn't get rid of the Astoroth worship. Um, so... He, though he made a step toward God, he did not fully devote to God. And this is what God is wanting from us as his children, is to be fully devoted to him. And all that he asks really is for us to step out and be his children and do what he wants and asks us or to do. And yet, even we as Christians sometimes hold back from what he wants us to do. And we have our reasons, you know, 101 reasons why we don't serve God. Um, you know, and I was thinking, you know, and I was talking with uh, one of the chaplains out at the prison the other day, and I'm going, it's so hard sometimes when, when life gets in the way of serving God. You know, the things we would like to do, want to do, and can't squeeze it in because everything else about life is going on. And there's certain things that make it hard for us. If, if we're looking to set up a devotional time. You know, it's an amazing thing when you start trying to set up a devotional time. You, I'm going to read every morning, and things come up. The alarm clock doesn't go off. The power goes off. You get busy. You, your breakfast took a little longer to make than you thought. You know, whatever it might be, things get in the way. And it's an amazing thing. Every time we decide to serve God, it seems like Satan wants to throw everything at us to keep us from serving him. And this is us wanting to. And this isn't even somebody like Jehoiaz who doesn't want to serve him, who's just trying to bend his knee because he sees his nation falling apart. And he decides, well, I've got to try something. You know, but even for us as Christians, oftentimes it's hard. What's your verse by saying here? It says the Lord provided like those present tense. Uh, let's see, in verse 5? Yeah. And the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they came, went out from under the hand of Syria. Yes, but it doesn't happen until the end of, end of Jehoiah's life. Yeah, when I first read that, I was looking for how. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's what I did when I first started reading it too. Yeah. Uh, but you've also got to remember, this is something very important that you bring out. In God, everything is present tense. Yeah. You know, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even at this point, even though they're dead long time, he sees them as live because technically they are live in his presence. But God, when, when Moses said, God, what is your name? He said, I am that I am. He's the eternal present. And when Jesus said, I am, before Abraham was, I am, the people of, of the, around him knew that he was claiming to be God. You know, because they knew Abraham had died a long time ago. And he said, before, before Abraham was, I am. And they, go, they, they understood very clearly what he was saying. Uh, so yes, it's very much present tense because in God's aspect, it's just a blink of an eye and Jehoiahaz was dead and he's delivering, delivering Israel back to, back to him. Uh, and his son wasn't that much better. <laughs> so, but his son got the benefit of his repentance. And likewise, and they escaped. So uh, I'm trying to put a context there for the son in the same time frame. How long after this was his son? Uh, he reigned for 17 years. We don't know exactly when, when this prayer went out in that 17-year period. And it must have been under the power of Syria for quite some time. Syria was taking away their land from them because of his disobedience with God. So he, he reigns for 17 years. Did he wait for five years, seven years? Was he at the end of the 17 years? We don't really know because there's no time marker. There's no time marker in here to tell us how long he tried to struggle. Uh, he might have been in his first year realizing that he's losing his land. I don't think it was that quick, but, but he's realizing at some point, I'm losing land, and the only one that's going to help me is maybe this God that, that we remember. Because remember, all the time that when we come in here, people always went back to what, what God had done in Egypt and what he had done in the crossing of the, the, the wandering for 40 years and kept his people, and then what he did when they conquered the Canaan. And many times you'll even hear the story, go, you know, Gideon asked him, well, where is the God who's, who delivered our people? Where is the God who, who, who gave us all these victories? And we see that refrain many times, so I think he's having that same, you know, we've been losing, we we're not serving God, but maybe, you know, where is the God who promised to keep us? Who, where is the God who promised to give us our land, even though those aren't in there? And he goes to God and says, God, you know, probably, God, you said you were going to give us this land. You said you were going to keep us. Where have you been? So, yeah, it's, it, we want everything. We don't want to do what you say. We don't want to, we don't want to be yours, but you know, we, want, we, want, we want the goodies. But that's not uncommon even for Christians. Uh, it's not uncommon even for Christians. God, I haven't been serving you quite the way I want, but I want all the blessings that you promised me. You know, and all of God's promises are conditional promises pretty much. Salvation is not conditional. He says if we call on Jesus, he's going to give us all these things, but the great blessings on it are conditional. If I honor him, if I confess I have fellowship, if I, if I do this, if I do this, I have this. But God is so merciful that often he gives us the blessings even though we don't fulfill our end of the bargain. All right? Uh, now, just imagine how much blessing we could have if we fulfilled our end of the bargain. 
and we actually served him the way we were supposed to, and we followed the Great, Com Great Commission, and we, and we did everything that he asked us to do, you know, who knows what he would do for us, and it would still be a gracious gift to us, because we can't earn it, but Jehoiash is going to get this blessing even though he doesn't deserve it. Well, his people are going to get the blessing. He's going to be dead by the time, time it happens, but his people are going to get the blessing because he went to God and said, and I'm sure his prayer probably was, God, you know, where, where is the God who did all these things that, that, that we keep hearing about? Because even though the northern kingdom is not following God, is not worshiping him, they still consider themselves Jewish. They're probably still, even though we don't see it, they're probably still practicing Passover. They're still practicing, you know, the, the major holidays. Well, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. You know, they're, they're doing all, they'll be doing all these things, just as the Jews to this day practice these things, even if they have practically no religious affiliation, they will practice Passover. They will, they will look at tabernacles. They will do these things that make them Jews in their mind, you know, because they think it's all tradition and, and all road activity and not so much a relationship with God. And God, even for them, was looking for a relationship with them. And that's why people like David rose up and, and, and Gideon and people that would get and come into a relationship with God and get blessed in great ways. And Jehoiaz is just going in, God, you know, where, 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 is, where is this God who's, who's supposed to keep us? And, you know, challenging God, saying, you made promises and you're not keeping your part. And God could have easily said, but you haven't kept your part. You're not worshiping me. Because when Moses gave them the law, he said, you have to be careful to do everything that God has said to, to have the blessings that he promised. Now, they can go back to the blessings of Abraham, and that is why God is helping Jehoiaz, because of Abraham's blessing. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And that was unconditional. So when they're being oppressed... And he comes before God and says, we need your help. That's why they always call him the God of Abraham, right? Oh, well, because it's still God, the God of Abraham and not their own God. Okay. Because they haven't made him a personal God. It's like when you meet people and you say, well, are you a Christian? Well, my grandpa was. What are they saying? The God of my grandpa is the one I'm having trust in. Not my God. Not the God who cares for me. But they're reaching back and saying, God called Abraham. So on one side, yes, they're, 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 they're going to Abraham and saying, but it's also that they have not appropriated God to be my God. When Jesus taught the disciples to pray and he said, pray our Father who art in heaven, there's not a Jew that would, would ever use that term, even though handful of them thought of him as their father. They never really thought of him as that close a relationship. And for the Jewish people, God was somebody to be feared. And hopefully I've asked, hopefully I've given enough sacrifices. I've done, I've made enough sacrifices. I haven't forgotten a sin when I, when I made my sacrifice and God, God is going to accept me. Now a handful of them, David and you know, various prophets, they understood God is merciful. David understood that God loved, loved him and that he had mercy on him and that he was his God. 
Now, he probably still referred to him as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he also said, this is my God. Daniel had that relationship. This is my God. And this is a place where every single person, especially those who grow up in a church, who had Christian families, at some point the child has to come up with, I am worshiping my God. I'm not worshiping mom and dad's God or grandma and grandpa's God. I'm worshiping my God. And that's a place that most Jews never approach. He's just a God. And he's a God that really they don't want to get near because everything about it is law. If I don't keep all the laws and I don't offer the sacrifices, the right sacrifices and repent of all my sin, then I'm not going to be accepted. Or at the very least, I'm accepted only because I'm a Jew. And he's not, he's not a God that they would approach out of love. And this is the problem for most religion. Your God is somebody you don't approach because they're full of vengeance. The, the Muslims do not have a God that they can approach. They hope that they've done enough good so that when they die, they might go to heaven if Allah is pleased with them enough. The Jews are pretty much that same way. If I've done enough good, I can get to heaven, especially now at the, the temple. See, they're without hope now. With the temple, they, it was all based on their sacrifices. Have I, have I repented of all my sins when I put my hand on the, on the sin offering? Did I repent of all my sins? Did I forget any of them? And when they walked away, they were hoping that they had not forgotten any sin that they, to, to lay on that sacrifice. Since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the, the rabbis have declared, because there is no temple to offer sacrifices, you have to do more good than bad to get to heaven. Even though the Old Testament is very clear that that's not good enough. So those who study the, the book, which isn't a whole lot, know that they're up the creek without a paddle, and yet, they have, well, because we don't have a temple, there has to be some way for us to please God. And it's a problem for them. And this is what Jehoi is doing. You know, God, I know, I'm, you know, I know I'm not doing this, but you're the God that did. <laughs> you're the God that chose us, and you're letting us get taken. And it was for that very reason, God, because of what God remembered was promised to Abraham. That's the only reason they're going to be spared. And... Uh, and then it says at the end of that verse 5 is that they were at the end, when they got their Savior, they were able to dwell in their tents as beforehand. So they went back to the towns and, and, and tribes and cities that were conquered, and they got to live in their tents and be, be free of that. And then in verse 7, it kind of goes, And neither did he lead the people to Jehoiaz, but 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 footmen for the king of Assyria had destroyed them and made them like the dust of the threshing. He did not have much of an army left. Uh, 10,000 foot soldiers is not much of an army to go to battle with. Uh, 50, 50 cavalry is definitely no army, and 10, 10 chariots uh, is nothing. I mean, it sounds like a big number, but for a full kingdom, he was left practically defenseless and because he kept losing battles. This is Jehoiaz. No, this is Jehoiaz. He's still alive. Jehoiaz is still alive. We haven't got... The Savior hasn't come yet. He's not coming until Jehoiaz dies and his son takes over. Right, and this is, what he, this is the point of this. He, cannot, he has lost all of his battle. He does not have enough men to even fight a skirmish, basically. 
against this guy, and, and he's taking land and making Israel smaller and smaller, as, we, as it was said in the previous chapter. All right, uh, verse 8. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiaz and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? And Jehoiaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash his son reigned in his stead. All right, so we have Jehoiaz dead. Uh, basically, all he did was lose land and pray to God for, for, for a rescue. But he was not willing to repent and leave his idols. And now we see that his son takes over. And because um, Joe, Joe Ash is not uh, dead, we have this new son taking over. Uh, what did I say? And Joe Ash. So we got two Joe Ashes at the same moment. This threw me for a moment. So we got two Joe Ashes. Joash. The 37th year of Joash, King of Judah began Jehoash. Yeah, that, yeah, Jehoash. Jo, yeah. yeah, we get this problem going in all the way things. There's always two names for all of these different kings. All right, verse 10. And in the 37th month of Joash, King of Judah, began Jehoash, the son of Jehoiazah, to reign over Israel and Samaria. And he reigned 16 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel sin, but he walked therein. And the rest of the acts, acts of Joash and all that he did and his might wherein he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, uh, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king of Israel? And Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat upon the throne, of, and Joash was buried in Samaria, and with the kings of Israel. So he has very little said about him at all. He's going to reign 17 years, uh, uh, 16 years, and he's going to fight. He's going to fight with Amaziah, king of Israel. Uh, so he doesn't, have, he doesn't have a big enough problem with the northern kingdom, with uh, Syria fighting him on the north. He's got to fight the southern. He's got to fight to the south in Israel, in Judah at the same time. All right. Uh, very, very uh, kind of crazy person with his, with his thought processes. Uh, so, when did he switch from Joash, king of Judah, to Amaziah, king of Judah? Uh, let's see, 37th year, the king Joash began, began Jehoash, the son of Jehoiash, to reign. So, in the 37th year of Joash, and Joash is going to reign for 40 years. So we have Joash reigning for 40 years. Joash kind of died right after Jehoiash. Right, he's going to he's going to die he's going to die out 3 years after he takes over. And Jeroboam is going to take over in is Judah. Okay. <laughs> and this is a good Jeroboam, not the bad Jeroboam from the Isn't it fun doing all these names that are hard for us to remember in the first place and then they reuse the names on us? Yeah. Uh, and then Amaziah is going to take over from Joash, and he's going to keep fighting too. <laughs> uh, so, and basically we have Jehoiaz is going to fight with the, southern king, uh, with the southern kingdom, and he's got the problems with Ahaziel up north. And those, three ver those four verses are all there is to know about that man uh, in this section. Now, if you read Chronicles, Chronicles is just the kings of Judah, 
But every once in a while, they'll mention some of these guys in, their, in the process. Uh, and then we end up with this interesting thing. In the middle of all these king stories, we have this little place where Elisha dies. So in verse 14, Now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him a bow and arrows. And, said to the, and he said to the king, Put your hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hand and said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance, the arrow of deliverance from Syria for you, shall smite the Syrians in Aphek until, until you have consumed them. Then he said, Take the arrows, and he took them, and he said unto the king of Israel, Smite you upon the ground, and he smote thrice and stayed. And the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have smitten five or six times, then would you have smitten Syria till you had consumed it, whereas now you shall smite Syria but three times. All right. We have Elisha, and all of a sudden, you know, we've had, we haven't talked about Elisha for a long time. I don't know if Elisha was getting old and he more or less retired or what, but we'd never, we have not really heard about him since Ahab, and at Ahab he was fairly old. And we now have the king of Israel going down to see Elisha. And I'm still kind of curious about this because he is also not following God. But there was still a respect for the prophets of Israel, to, uh, of, of, of God, to a degree. And it's interesting, this, the word he says, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. Now, I'm sure everybody remembers 2 Kings 2.12, and this is exactly what Elisha said when Elisha was taken away. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. So... This king, Joash, or Jehoiaz, is repeating the same exact words that Elisha said when Elijah was taken away. And so this is almost an understanding of him that the keeper of this country has been God. Now, he thinks it's in the prophet, and I believe it's still a reference to the chariot that took Elijah away but the horsemen were the defense. So he's kind of recognizing that God is their defense, even though he doesn't want to admit it. And this is something we see, and it's, it's very interesting when we look at the lost world, how they may not even believe in God, they don't believe in a God that cares for them, but it's always God's fault when something bad happens. And they need God's help to get them out of it. And we even have, it's an act of God. You know, if, if nature attacks them, it's an act of God. Uh, and that's a term that is still used. But and people who don't really trust or believe in God want to blame him for anything bad that happens. And this is the sad thing out there. Even atheists will tend to blame God, who they don't believe in, for the bad things that happen to them. And it's kind of an amazing, amazing thing when an atheist blames God or prays to God for help. I would believe in him, but he lets all those bad things happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, we as Christians, hopefully, 
understand that God is sovereign and he has a reason for what's, what we're going through, but even Christians will blame God so often. God, why did you let these things happen to me? And usually when we say that kind of thing, it's because we're out of fellowship with him in the first place and, the, and it's the consequences for our actions. And here this king is recognizing the man of God is dying. And, you know, I think it's very interesting. Elisha got sick and he's a man of God. And I just want to bring out, you know, just because we get sick, it doesn't mean that we're unrighteous. The righteous get sick. The righteous die. The righteous get hurt. And this is something that we're looking at as, as, as we approach the end days in, in, the, in, in uh, civilization. Many Christians are going to get an apparent harm done to them. Just as it was done in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, and they said, you know, went go over all these people who died. The righteous die. The righteous get put under persecution. The righteous get martyred. And it doesn't mean that they're not righteous. It just means God is using their death to reach others. And they get to go home first. Get to go home first. <laughs> not necessarily without pain, but they get to go home. Yeah, I, that's what I love. Is Stephen looked up and said, I, "Behold, I see God standing at the right hand, uh, Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father." Yeah. And even in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, like the guy standing at the, at the permanent stake, they don't—they're not feeling pain. There's many people, and, and and you're making a good point because I'm rereading Fox's Book of Martyrs right now, yeah. and it is amazing these people embracing the the stake when they're being burned. You know, not trying to run from it. You know. Uh, singing praises to God as they're going toward being beheaded or quartered or whatever, whatever attack because they recognize that God is there and that they're still serving God and God hasn't forgotten them just because of what they're going through. And this is why I keep telling us, we need to be ready. I don't know what's coming. I don't know when it's coming. But I see handwriting on the wall that says trials are coming. Persecution is coming. Right now, we've got a big bill in front of, the, of Congress called the Equity Act, which will make being a Christian almost against the law, okay? Because we have to accept transgenderism and homosexuality. And they make no, no provision for churches to be able to say, God says it's a sin, so we're not doing it. If that passes, Christianity will basically be outlawed. And you know they'll come after the churches that trust God. So we need to be ready. We need to be ready for what's coming. And it's uh, vote goes tomorrow in the House. Uh, and then it's got to pass the Senate. And it got failed. The last time they tried three or four years ago, it failed. But, but this time they've got just about everything they need in place to get it through. But it will basically outlaw Christianity, true Christianity. Because if we hold to God's word, we cannot participate in the things that they're going to make us do. But they're welcome to come to our church. But we have to accept them without calling what they're doing a sin. Yeah. By, by, the way that, by the way that law is written. And you know they're going to do that to churches. Just because we let them in, if I, if I stand up and say homosexuality is a sin or transgenderism is a sin... I'm guilty of, the, of violating that law. If somebody comes in and says, I want you, if I, yeah. somebody comes in and says, I want you to marry us, and I say no, 
I've discriminated against them by, their, by that law and will fa and face the penalty. Yeah, yeah. It's the next, next step, step up. And you know what's going to happen. If that passes, they're going to go to, to any church that calls what they do a sin and not cooperating with them to bring it to have this fined or arrested or whatever the penalties are going to be. And so these are the things we're facing. So we need to be ready as a church and as Christians to say we're going to make our stand for God. That doesn't mean I'm going to attack them. I'm not going to go after them, but I'm going to hold my stand with God and say, God calls it a sin. I can't accept it. You know, uh, you know we already in, the, in that place with, when people live together. It's so accepted in this day and age that most Christian churches don't even touch it, but it's still fornication. It's still sin. And we have to call it sin, even though the rest of the nation, the world, whatever, is okay with it. It's still a sin. And this is where, and now this one will come with the force of law behind it. So we will be in a position, do we obey law and the government, which is contrary to God, or do we obey God? Well, it's what's coming. I've, I've, sent, my, I've sent my letters and faxes to all, the, all of the uh, House and the, and the senators to say, don't do this. I don't know if it's going to go through. It's between you know, God and, and, and what he will allow. But they're poised to allow it to happen. And there is a time when these things are going to happen. I mean, it may not be this time. But at some point, everything's going to turn against Christians. We need to prepare our hearts for that turn. And be ready to say, I'm going to stand for God. And that may mean we're in prison, re-education camps. You know, they're already, they're already understanding that we need to be re-educated. You, you hear this term a lot in the news and the, in the, in the newspapers. We are, we are so out of touch that we have to be re-educated and taught how to think. Yeah. And re-education camps are what, what Stalin did, what Mays Tao Sung Young did, it's what uh, Hitler did. Uh, his concentration camps were called re-education camps because he wanted to reteach people to think the right way, according to him. And we will, we hear this term being thrown around all over the place. And you know, by the current current administration and the media are talking all about how we need to be re-educated. We have to be taught to think what's good for 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 the for the all these poor people that are discriminated against and not have our Bibles, not have our, you know, and this is where our country is headed, and we need to be prepared. We need to have our hearts ready to stand for God, to be ready to be thrown into the fire, be ready to throw, be thrown into the den, den of lions, to be ready to be sawn in half. Uh, it will not be easy. Whether this one is going to be it or somewhere down the road, it's coming, and we need to be ready to th think it. <laughs> so Elisha tells, him, tells the king who's visited him, he says, go get a bow and arrow and shoot the arrow out the window. Now, I don't know how clear this window was from where Elisha's at at this point, but the king shoots an arrow out, out toward the east. Uh, hopefully Elisha's out in the middle of nowhere, so this arrow is not going to... And he goes, this is the arrow of deliverance. All right? It's his point that you are going to, Jehoiaz, you're going to be delivered. 
Then he gives them an interesting statement. He says, take the arrows and smite the ground. And the king just smacks the arrows on the ground three times and Elisha gets angry at him. And says, you should have smote the ground six, five or six times and then if you had done that, you would have gotten victory over your enemy, complete victory over your enemy. They would have been totally destroyed. And he goes, but because you only did it three times, you're, going to, you're only going to have victory three times. And this is kind of an interesting uh, statement for him, that he's, he's only going to have victory three times. And then we have this very strange story put in the middle of all of this. Verse 20. And Elisha died, and they buried him. And the bands of the Moabites invaded the land at the coming of the year. And it came to pass that they were, as they were burying a man, that, behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man in the sepulcher of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood, on, stood up on his feet. Elisha is laying there in, the, in, the, in, the, in, a, in his tomb, and they throw a body in, the, in there because they're trying to... They, they're trying to run for their lives from the band, and, and the guy touches the bones of Elisha and, and is resurrected just by touching the bones. Uh, this one really is the verse that you, the Jews use to really elevate Elisha to a very high standard. He was so righteous, he was so, so one with God that even his bones a year later <laughs> resurrected a man. Um, and it's kind of an interesting story. <laughs> and I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying it's just, it's just kind of thrown out there. So it's a year after Elisha Well, sometime within, because what burial rites in there, they would wrap the body up. Yeah. They would put it in a tomb for a year. Okay. The flesh and the bones and everything, the flesh would totally uh, uh, deteriorate. And at the end of the year, they would take and put all those bones into a box. And then that box would be buried someplace. And then they would reuse the same tomb again for the next person. So it had to be long enough to be Right. Well, it was, it was a year. It was a year that they, they would leave them there. And apparently, apparently in that year, in that area, the, the flesh, the flesh uh, deteriorated enough to be just bones and dust that they would... Going. So instead of burning the people like we would in our day and age to get to that place, they would just go in and let, them, let the body deteriorate, and then they would sweep everything into a box and, and bury the box. Um, and that was their process. So somewhere between the time he died and a year later when they were going to clean out his sepulcher, they threw this body in, it touched his bones, and the guy got up and was yeah. resurrected. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be kind of a freaky thing anyway. They, threw, they, they lowered him down, touched the bones, and he, wait, and he, get, and he wakes up. What a funeral. Probably scared his, par, his, his uh, partners to, uh, to be scared too. So uh, you you're, had him wrapped up, you dropped him in, and he, and he gets up and starts calling out, you know, hey, what am I doing here? Where am I? Uh, and he gets up, and he, and he stands up and walks away. <laughs> uh, it's just one of those little, quick little vignettes out there. Well, he must have ran away because the Moabites were still coming. Yeah, I don't know what happened on that. You know, we don't... Unless they saw the dead body come up out of there. 
And, well, actually, they say they cast his body in, and then, it went, and then it says that he was let down. So I'm not sure, did they throw him in? Did they lower him in? What were they doing on this? But n no matter how it was, the man got up. <laughs> uh, you know, these guys were already afraid of the Moabite band, so they may not have stuck around long. So this poor guy's in a tomb and comes walking out, not even knowing where he's at. You know, he dies at home in bed or something, and now he finds himself in a tomb. Uh, a little bit disorienting, I would think. Yeah, and then there's an army out there running around, a, a, or a band, a band of enemies running around. Uh, I don't know. It's it's just one of those things thrown in there. But the but the Jewish rabbis have had this big thing. This is one of the things that they go. He has a lot of power. He was so righteous that his body, even after it had been dead, had power. That somebody touches the bones of somebody? Yeah. Uh, the only time I know of bones being touched, but in Acts, people were taking rags that Paul used to wipe the sweat off his face and delivering to people, and they were being healed. So it's not the only time, but he wasn't dead. They, they were just taking the, a sweat-sopped a sweat rag and, and, and getting it. So it's the only thing I can remember where somebody touched the dead body and rose from the dead. In Ezekiel, the valley of dead, the vision of the valley of the dead bones. Uh, and he said, preach to them, and they came together. But that was a vision. It wasn't, it wasn't something that actually happened as far as we know. Because it says the vision of the valley of the dead bones. And the sinew came in, and it was a picture of Israel being raised up from, from its dead condition, most likely for the millennial kingdom. I'm going to say it says vision, so I'm going to say it did not happen. But I'm not going to rule out that it couldn't have happened, that an entire army raised up and came up. I don't really think happened because of the way, it, the way it's phrased. This is why I'm saying I'm not, I'm not ruling it out, but I'm not, the way it's phrased and the, and the way that it was used is more that it was a story and a vision of, the, of, a, of a truth. All right, verse 22. But Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoiaz, and the Lord was gracious unto them and had compassion on them and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, neither cast he from them from his presence as yet. So Haziel, king of Syria, died, and Ben-Hadah, his son, reigned in his stead, and Jehoiaz, the son of Jehoiaz, took again out of the hand of Benadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoiaz, his father, by war. Three times did Joash beat him and recovered the city of Israel. So here we have the son coming up, and he gets the three victories that he was told that he would get because he smote the ground three times. And he did not completely destroy Syria, but he was able to take back his city, the cities that they had conquered, not from Haziel, but from Behenadad, his son, and was able to get his people their land back. But he was not able to totally destroy it. But I really want to look at verse 23. The Lord was gracious. He had mercy on them and had compassion on them, which is love. 
These are two, even though they use compassion, uh, gracious and compassion, mercy and love and had respect for them. He turned toward them. And note the reason. Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not because of anything that Jehoiaz was doing, not because of anything that the people were doing, but because of the promise to Abraham. These people are hurting you. They're going to be hurt in return. If they had blessed them, they would have been blessed. And this is so important for us that God has a promise for Israel and it doesn't depend on what Israel's doing. God's promise is that if anybody blesses Israel, they, they in turn will be blessed. If they curse Israel, they will be cursed. We've seen it even in American history when our, when our government has made decisions against Israel, bad things happen in America. When we make decisions to bless Israel, good things happen in America. And it's not that Israel in today's world deserves any of them. They are not following after God. They are not worshiping God. But because of God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it still holds true. That when Israel's blessed, the nations are blessed. When they're cursed, the nation that curses them is cursed. Which is one of the things when you look at all the nations around Israel that keep attacking them, none of them prosper. None of them are prospering Israel is prospering. And this is so important because of the blessing that God put on them. He goes, I have made an unconditional promise to Abraham. And that unconditional promise still keeps them to this day. And this is another one of the dangers that we're looking at in our current current, um, um, president and his people that he's putting in place. They do not have a love for Israel that was previous to this. We need to be very careful. There's going to be things happening in our country just because of that. Just because of that. Plus, they're going against Christians. I mean, everything right now is an ungodly government making bad decisions for our country. And we as Christians and the Jewish people are going to suffer because of it. But yet, God is still sovereign and he will stand up and defend his people. And we need to be ready ready for what's going to happen and watch and, and pray. Pray that our government doesn't go too far down the wrong path at this point in time. But every sign says that they're going to go down the wrong path. But it just, at the same time, is it a very exciting time to live because we see revelation coming true. We see the, everything coming in place for the Antichrist to rise in power. We see the world calling out for a one world leader and one world government. And we see it all the time now in the papers and people you know, talking about how we need to centralize all the power and one person has to stand up and, and deliver us. Never in the existence of our world, except back at Nimrod, was there a clamoring for a one world government. And now we're seeing people calling for one world government. Give up all of your nation's rights and put it all under one supreme ruler. And we're looking at things happening from the book of Revelation that you know, I was longing to see but didn't really want to see. <laughs> but we're seeing them all, come, all starting to come to fruition. And we need to be prepared. Our hearts need to be ready for the trials that are coming. 
because things are coming. As this country starts to reject God and his laws more and more, and it keeps getting worse, and we know that's exactly what happens. When you start giving away God's rules, it's a slippery slope. You keep going down and down. Israel did it so many times. Uh, all through history, we've seen it happen. Once you break from God's rules, things just get worse. You see it in certain families, too. Families get worse and worse and worse and worse over the years unless somebody finally breaks it by getting, getting saved and turning to God. Nations do this all the time. They turn away from God, and things keep getting worse. And we are, historically, we're at a point that nations fall once they accept homosexuality and transgenderism all through history. And, and we're there. But God restores so many times in the Bible, too. Yeah. But who does he restore most often? Israel, because he has an unconditional covenant with Israel. But like in my case, the last verse in my case says it has compassion upon his people. Yep. We're also consider his people. Usually for Micah, I would say he was talking about Israel, but yeah. yes, we are his people, but his compassion may be just to take us home and take us out of this world. Okay. Uh, but we see this, you know, we see this all through history. As, as nations turn away from God, there comes the tipping point. The northern kingdom was sold into slavery into Assyria. The southern kingdom is going to be sold into slavery into Nebuchadnezzar, and then Rome. <laughs> so there's always these problems where God still has compassion on His people, still protects His people, but still has a lot of problems that come along with it and still be God's people we can be sent into martyrdom and still be his people and this is the problem that we're going to be looking at and I'm not sure we're going to face martyrdom anytime real soon but it's not too far-fetched uh, I do foresee being arrested for being a Christian coming down the pike and I don't think it's going to be too long before persecution will come uh, one thing I've been going through in the Fox's Book of Martyrs is that you'd have an emperor come along and cause persecution, and then you'd have another emperor come along, and they'd have 10 or 15 years of non-persecution, then they'd go back under persecution again. Uh, so where are we? What are we going to do? I don't see that if persecution stops, I, starts. I don't think it's going to stop. It could be something that crazy, or it could just literally be our government going so far overboard that there is not a Christian nation anymore. And I'm not going to rule out either, either side, uh, because we are headed down the wrong path. The laws that are being, being looked at are laws that are going to bring persecution. We just need to get our hearts ready for it. Most of the world is already under persecution. Most of Europe already has laws that don't allow Christians to speak their, speak their mind. They're not fully at persecution yet. Most of Asia is under persecution. Uh, Russia still has a lot of persecution. The old Soviet Union that's breaking down, that broke down had a moment of freedom for religion, but they're starting to push back. We're culminating all around the world. We're culminating in this place where God is being, God and his people are being attacked. And it's worldwide. 
And again, we have not seen anything like this since the days of Nimrod. And how did God break that one? The Tower of Babel, he confused languages and pushed everybody away from one world government. What are we seeing now? Language is not a problem anymore. And what we're seeing is people consolidating and saying the same thing that they said in Babylon, we can do anything that we want to do. And we're seeing exactly what happened in Babylon come. And that whole Babylon activities are, in, are talked about in the book of Revelation a lot. One world government, one world religion, one world, one world economy. All that Babylon had that God broke up, and the only time this time is going to break it up is the second coming of Christ. So we are looking at the fulfillment of Revelation because we see in Babylon being reconstructed. So some of the places in the Bible, I can't remember specific places, but it talks about cleansing by the fire. Is that in the Revelation? Revelation talks about the end of this world, and Peter also talks about it, yeah. that the end of the world will come with a great fire. At the end of all things, at the end of the millennial kingdom, there'll be the white throne judgment. Death and Hades will be cast into, the, into, into hell, the lake of fire, along with everybody else who, who's rejected God. And then God basically will just let go of the atoms. He holds all the atoms together. He'll let go, and the entire universe will be obliterated. <laughs> he will then make a new heaven and new earth and start the last chapter of Revelation for us where Jerusalem comes down which is us and then we get to rule on the new heaven and new earth that has been 100% cleared and, and made new because the old one is gone and when you look at it it literally shows an explosion of such magnitude that I literally just say you know I think of it in terms of physics God holds every atom together he just says okay I'm going to let go and the entire yeah. entire universe just explodes it's totally gone, and he just creates a new one. There's that big bang. Yeah, there's the, bi there, there's the big bang. <laughs> but it's not going to recreate into a new world from the big bang. Um, so here we see God delivering his people, not because of anything that they, they deserve, but because of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which will be the same thing during the tribulation period. The Jewish people will be protected because God is going to gather them together and put his hand over them so Satan cannot destroy them. Even though Satan is going to try very hard and put the whole world against them. And then Jesus returns and annihilates the, the armies of, of, of Satan. Will he protect all the Jews or just the 144,000? The way that it reads is any Jew who has not taken the mark of the beast is going to be protected, which is going to be the 144,000 plus whatever converts they have. It might even include Gentiles who are going to be, be gathered in at that point. Because at the millennial kingdom, there will be mostly Jews who are, who are in the new millennial kingdom they will, and anybody who has not taken the mark of the beast. All other ones will be cast into Hades waiting until the end of the thousand years to stand stand for judgment and be cast into the lake of fire. So anybody who is following God will be protected by him. Because God in the middle of the book of Revelation says, upon those that are his, he puts a mark. And he actually talks about many of the diseases and everything not touching his people 
that had been marked. So God has a mark and Satan has a mark during that period of time. Now, Satan, you put his mark on. God puts his mark on his people. So he marks them. And the spirit world knows not to touch the ones that God has marked. So it'll be very much like the, the plagues of, of uh, Egypt. For the first couple plagues, everybody experienced them. Toward the, the last five or six of them, I can't remember where the mark of, the Jews did not have those plagues. So one of the things that was so funny, when darkness fell on, on Egypt, Goshen had light. And all through those other ones, they were, they were protected because God had said, these are my people. This is only going to affect their enemy. So there will be times during the tribulation where God says, you guys are protected, you guys are not. And there will be a clear difference. And Israel for many years has had these problems. They, when they have obeyed God, they have not been affected by much of the plagues. During the, during the Black Plague days of the Middle Ages, the Jews followed God's laws, didn't get infected with the Black Plague because of their laws. They, if, a, if a rat traveled over their food or ate a food, they didn't eat it. They got rid of the plate. They got rid of whatever it was, and they did not get the, the infection. Now, the world accused them of being sorcerers <laughs> and causing them to get sick while they did not get sick and then persecuted them for not getting, not getting the plague. Even, even when we're blessed by God and by following his rules, we can still be persecuted by the world. And this is you know, the point I'm making is we need to be ready to stand for God and really learn the disciples' statement, thank God I've been found worthy to suffer. Because if we don't get that place, when we start suffering, it's going to be very easy to reject God. God, you just didn't keep your side of the bargain. Well... And American Christians are going to have that problem because most of them don't pay attention to Jesus saying they hated me, they're going to hate you. And he goes, there will be, he said he came to bring a sword into families, not, not all this other stuff. I mean, when we read what he says, trials and tribulations are part of being, being his child, but knowing that he's in control and that he's going to bring good out of it in the long run. But if we don't come in with the right attitude, we will not come to the right place. And I'm, I'm afraid for many of my Christian friends and friends out there that don't really understand true Christianity. They have this American version of God is good. You know, and, that mean, and by their definition is that he's going to give me all these blessings and nothing bad will ever happen to me. Most of them have never read the book of Job <laughs> or don't believe that it applies to them. But Job is one of the most important books for us to understand that God is still in control, still, still knowing what's going on, and even though it makes no sense to us, he still has his hand on what's going on, even when it seems to be bad. And when we read the scriptures, we know that God never promised us a rose garden. He never promised us you know, that everything were going to be you know, rainbows and kittens you know, or you know, puppies. <laughs> He's promised to take care of us. He's promised to give us strength to go through whatever he allows us to go through. But ultimately, just as Paul said, these afflictions on this world are nothing in comparison to heaven. 
if we're thinking that this is heaven and this is where we're getting all of our blessings, we're going to be in trouble. When we go through the hard times, we realize, God, this is only a short time. And I've said this before, and it is true. If nothing but bad happens to me from the time I'm born to the time I die and I live to be two or 300, it is still a short time for bad things to happen to me in comparison to an eternity in heaven. Because this world is as close to hell as any of us are going to be as Christians. And even if we literally live in pure hell, you know, hell by human standards in this world, it's nothing compared to eternity. The sad thing is for those going to hell, this is as close to heaven as they're ever going to have. And this is a miserable taste of heaven. It's much closer taste to hell, but it's not even hell, but it's much, much more like hell than it is heaven. And for those going to hell, they're going to look back at this world and say, can't I go back to that world? It really wasn't all that nice, but I want to go back there. We won't have that. We will be in heaven, and we won't even be thinking about what it was like to be out here. We'll be so happy to be where we're at. So this is the key. Where is our focus on? Am I really looking toward heaven and what's coming down you know, than, than what's going to happen on this world? Job's problem was that he didn't look to heaven most of the time, not until the very end. He was looking at his sorry state and how he didn't deserve what he got. Yeah. Yes. But at the end, when God challenges him, he finally says, I'm going to shut my mouth. I have nothing to say. Yeah. You know, God spoke to him after he said, I want to talk to God. And he goes, I've shut my mouth. I have nothing to say. And God says, answer me. He goes, I have nothing to say. <laughs> yeah. He finally started realizing that God was in control. And then God told him, you pray, for the, you pray for these guys that don't know me. You pray for their forgiveness, and you give them forgiveness, and God then blessed him with twice everything that he had before. So he, in the long run, was well blessed. He got a second set of children, which was twice of them because the other ones were in heaven, so he didn't, you know, never lost those ones either, theoretically. And then he got twice as much physical goods so that he was twice as wealthy as he was when, he, when, it, when it all started. And God has blessing for us at the end of everything. If nothing else, he has blessing for us in heaven. But he also has the blessings of the peace on this world. When our focus is correct and we have the peace of God in our heart, we can have great peace and longing and know what's going on, even when we're walking through a storm. Even when we're walking through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. He, gives, he sets the feasting table in the presence of our enemy. Now, in the middle of your enemy's battle is not where you set up a great big feast. And yet David says, my God sets up the feast in the middle, in the presence of my enemies in, in Psalm 23. Now, it's a very powerful psalm when you really look at what he does. He meets all of our needs. He, he keeps us in the, in the shadow of death. He keeps us, when we're, when we're under attack, he, he says, I'm, we're going to be so peaceful that you've got enemies all around you and we're going to have a feast. Sometimes. I've said, this, I've said this many times. If my eyes are on God, I have walked through the midst of a storm and looked back over my life and going, it's pretty messy back there. What happened? And not recognize it. Because you're always saying, if we're not being persecuted, we're not doing enough of God. Well, I don't see that. 
You're, you're either so focused on God that you're not seeing it, or maybe there's something more you're supposed to do. I don't know. I can't answer that one, but I do know many times in my life I have walked through problems and I've come to, out to the other side and I kind of look back and go, wow, an awful lot, an awful lot happened back there. But my eyes were focused just as Peter when he stepped out of the boat. When he was focused on Jesus, he walked on the water in the middle of a storm. As soon as he took his eyes off Jesus and started looking at the storm, then all of a sudden there's, you know, I know the thoughts of the other would have run through his mind. Uh, wow, this is a pretty bad storm. Uh, why am I in the middle of the lake on, uh, out, and I'm not in the boat? Uh, I'm walking, I can't walk on water. <laughs> as soon as he started looking at his circumstances, he started sinking. And I've done this myself. Again, I've walked through the middle of storms and looked back and going, wow, a lot happened. God, thank you. So I do think a lot of times it is going to be where are, where's our focus. If we're so focused on God, he, then I am sheltered in him and I'm dwelling in that fortress. He's taking the beating and I'm not feeling it. Uh, I get outside of that fortress <laughs> and I get beat up and feel like I'm having to suffer. And we'll go back to Stephen. Stephen's being stoned and he's looking up and saying, I see Jesus. Yeah. And that's pretty much we're either walking in the light or walking in the dark. And when we're walking in the light, he's covered us and we are in Christ. We are in the, you know, he is our strong tower. He is our fortress. You know, all the different things that are in the Old, Old Testament specifically that he is our protector. And if I'm in him, I don't feel the storm. And that storm may be beating pretty heavily. But when I'm in Christ, Satan can throw everything he wants at Christ and it's not going to affect Christ at all. I won't even hear the storm out there because it's so, you know, protected. But I can look at the damage when I step, you know, look out the window and go, wow, look at all the trees that were knocked down and, the, and the, all the water that flow, you know, flowed around and look at those arrows all over the place or whatever it is that I'm, I'm looking at. Focused on him, I, see not, I feel nothing. Focused on myself and not him, I'll feel everything. And I'll feel like I'm being buffeted and knocked around and beat up, which is why it's so important for us to stay in him and know that he is God, which is one of the reasons I love Romans 8.28. No matter what I think I'm finding, no matter what I think I'm feeling, God has a plan. And he hasn't stopped being God. And sometimes we need to be reminded. Romans 8.28. I think it was Mueller's wife that kept reminding him. It might have been one of the other guys I've read, but kept reminding him. Every time he'd start you know, losing it, he'd go, Romans 8, 28 has not been taken out of the Bible. And I'm not sure if it was Mueller. I know it was one of the guys I read, but his wife just kept reminding him. Every time he thought things were not good, Romans 8, 28 is still in the Bible. Now, if you truly believe it in the first place, that's great advice. If somebody reminds me Romans 8, 28 when I'm going through a hard time, I'm going to say, oh, yes, you're right. Don't ever try to remind somebody that, though, if they don't believe in Romans 8, 28 to begin with, because they'll be ready to take your head off because if they don't believe that God's in full control, they're not going to believe that he's in full control in the middle of a hardship. But for those of us who truly believe that God's always in charge and that he will work everything out for good, it's a great reminder to say, God has got it. He's got a plan. And this is the important thing for us to re always remember that God has a plan for us. 
And it's a good plan. It really is a good plan. It may not seem like a good plan when we're in the middle of it. And I've told you all many times, sometimes my prayer is, God, I don't understand how this can be good, but I'm holding on. I'm at the end of this rope, and I'm holding on to the only knot at the end of this rope, and that's Romans 8, 28. You've promised that it's going to be good. I don't see how it can be, and I'm, I'm going to hang on to this promise because that's all I've got to hang on to. And watch what he does. Now, without that, you're floundering around in a, in a, in a, in a storm and, and, a, and a long wash, and you're, and you're drowning. And you're going, God, I just don't understand any of this. And this is very important. What do we believe? Why do we believe it? And how much are we going to believe God? All of our trials are to say, do we believe God? Joash went to God and said, I, want, I need your help, and ended up getting help. <laughs> yeah. you know. But he's going to lose his life. Yeah. So, Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for your love and care. Lord, always teach us to look to you and your salvation and your power because you are the great one. You are the one that has a plan, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening, friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.